It's been a very busy week in the world of spaceflight, so in this week's podcast, we're going to do our very best to get you up to date. We also pay our respects to former NASA astronaut Dr. William Edgar Thornton, who passed away on January 12th. And don't forget that we have social media too. You can follow us at Space and Things One on Twitter or get involved at Space and Things Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks once again for tuning in and supporting our podcast. But right now, we hope you enjoy episode 21 of the Space and Things Podcast. You're listening to the Space and Things Podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 21 of our podcast. Now, Emily, we had a fantastic response to last week's show. Who knew that it would be alternative histories that was the silver bullet for us? Who knew? Yeah, yeah, I I was really, uh, exactly, I was very uh, encouraged to see all the positive responses to that episode. I think it's a I think it's a lot of fun. So yeah, I'm really excited, and thanks to everybody who reached out on that one. Yeah, thanks a lot uh, to all those. We're going to go through some of those responses later, uh, but also Emily, it's almost like someone at Apple TV may be a fan of the podcast. After all, the very next day after we talked about For All Mankind with such glowing praise, they released the long trailer, the second trailer for the second series of For All Mankind. Is this a coincidence? I think not. <laughs> yeah, that that uh, trailer dropped uh, right after our episode came out. <laughs> yeah. It was really cool. Uh, I was so excited to see it. I was like, I'm ready. Let's just just bring out the show now. We'll just bring it out early because we're all like sitting here depressed and stuff. Like, just, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just bring it Although out. Although it still is, it's still going to be a great birthday present for you when that is out. Yes. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna have an awesome day. I think I'm going to take that day off from work because I'm like, <laughs> nice. hey, yeah, why not? I'm just going to sit and watch For All Mankind and just chill, you know? Absolutely. And and it, uh, looking at that trailer, it does look like you were correct. It's going to be a lot more Cold War-y. Uh, that, that <laughs> can I use that like that? I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That, there's really no other way to put it. I mean, it, yeah. Yeah, it looks like uh, we're fighting the, the Soviets up on the moon or something. I don't know. We'll see, I guess. Yeah, we yeah we certainly will see. Um, but you've had a busy week, Emily. I've noticed you've had two new blog posts up, one on each of your blogs. So uh, let's start with uh, with your new, your latest blog, the making of an ex nuke. Uh, you've written a fantastic article on there this week. So uh, t- you know, tell us a bit more about it. Thank you. Um, the my last uh, blog was uh, basically about you know it, it was had kind of a simple title, basically how we can better support women in uh, space flight and tech writing, pretty much. I just basically, I've had a lot of these ideas in my head for, like, months. Like, man, I wish I could, you know, write down and suggest, you know, ways to support us because I've had kind of internal frustrations over the past few years, and I never really voiced them. And I was like, why don't you just write it down? Okay, someone might get mad. They'll they'll get over it. Nobody ever died from being mad before, you know? <laughs> it boiled down to, you know... The best way I think um, we can amplify, you know, women, and not just women, I mean, my minority voices, anybody who kind of started at a maybe a different point than some, you know, a man, a male writer. Mm-hmm. I think the best way we can amplify those voices is just by sharing their work and treating their work as kind of, you know, on the same level as a guy's work, you know? Absolutely. Um, 
Absolutely. That was basically it. It's very it was very um, you know, very simple idea. I did bring in a few, you know, statistics in the piece like I I brought in some uh, other articles that I'd read and one of them was a CNBC article and it was basically, you know, discussing how women at, you know, the same point in their careers as men tend to not get, you know, higher level positions. You know, so we're really kind of historically I hate saying this, it sounds so awful, but we've always kind of been behind. And um, another thing I brought up was that, you know, a lot of women's writing, it, it's kind of viewed as like a novelty almost. She's talented. She's they um, but she she's real cute. You know, that kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's viewed oh, as good, like good for you. Pat on the back. Yeah. It's not viewed through the same lens as like a man's work, you know, like mm. a man's writing or something like that. You know, and um, I brought up an example of there some dude, some some dude critic was talking about a woman's novel. And instead of really discussing her work, he was like discussing her pouty lips or just something dumb. And I'm like, just stuff like that. And it's like, um, you know, and I hate to go off on men. I really do. I don't want to sound like, you know, you know, hateful or something. But it's like, um, you know, all we want to do is get seen have our work shared as like being on the same level as a guy's work. That's it. It's very simple. I'll be honest, Emily. I I didn't take it as being hateful at all. I thought you were being quite constructive in your criticism. And um, it'd be interesting to see what happens over the next few weeks with uh, the new NASA administrator, because there's a lot of talk that the Biden administration uh, are going to choose a female, first female leader of NASA. Uh, there's talk of it either being Ellen Stofan, who's already made history by being the first uh, director of the Smithsonian um, Air and Space Museum, or Pam Melroy, uh, former astronaut Pam Melroy. And I don't know if either of them are actually going to get it. They're both highly qualified, more than qualified to do that job. Um, but it'll be interesting to see whether having a, a woman at the top of NASA changes any of this sexism that exists within certain aspects of the fandom of space or whether this causes an even bigger explosion of stuff that we have to deal with i hope not the second one yeah no i agree i've kind of wondered about the same thing i'm like you know i think that would be that'll be awesome and if that does happen um i'll be thrilled because you know obviously i mean in my lifetime i've never i've never seen it i'm 43 and i'm like we've never seen that that would be awesome yeah I hope it's the former and not the latter. <laughs> That's all. Uh, I'm sure we're going to see some of the latter. I'm sure there'll be a few people who just have to say what they got. They want to say, and that's fine. We can ignore. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we can. Uh, and hopefully this event happening, if it does happen, we'll just show them that, you know, women do belong in this industry. I mean, I don't know if it's e going to be either of those two women. I've heard a few rumors of who they might select, and all the women's names that I've heard dropped are perfect candidates. Absolutely, and there's no reason to suggest that any of those names would do anything but a phenomenal job. So uh, we'll, we'll look forward to the developments on that. But great article, Emily. Um, I, I will put the link in the show notes, but we have also shared it on social media, which... Um, takes me to your other blog now uh, your national space society blog uh, this space available unfortunately um at the top of the show you heard us say that we had a tribute to uh, to to pay this week to a former astronaut but we have another tribute we have to pay as well and that's what uh, the subject of this blog was about so i'll pass over to you to talk about that yeah um last week uh it came out that uh 
Space historian Phil Clark passed away. He actually passed away in late 2020, but the news really just filtered over uh, to our side of the coast here um, last week, so we weren't we didn't know about it. Phil Clark is a huge hero of mine. He's one of the big uh, Soviet spaceflight experts of the 1980s and, and all time, basically. Uh, he was also an expert on the Chinese space program. And um, his career started, he was a, a, a member of the uh, British Interplanetary Society, Interplanetary Society, which was started by uh, Arthur C. Clarke, no relation, I think back in the 30s or 40s, quite some time ago. And um, he was a pretty big figure in that group. And um, during the 1980s, he started talking to other members, including uh, Rex Hall. That's another very famous person who was in who was in that society. At that time, they just started sort of finding out what the Soviets were doing in space, you know, because there was a lot of secrecy, you know, between the East and the West at the time. So um, Clark started to compile these things together in a book that was uh, eventually published in 1988. And the book is called The Soviet Manned Space Program. Uh, The reason why it's called that was because at the time, that was the language in spaceflight. I, I know if Phil released it more recently, it would be called the Soviet Space Program. So uh, just a note on that. But um, it is one of the best books ever written about Soviet spaceflight. Uh, although it is an older book, it, it's I still recommend it. It's a great resource to have. Um, and it's beautifully illustrated. And it, it's just a great book. So it's a masterpiece. Over the years, he did edit a um, a volume of the Jane Spaceflight Directory. Uh, some of y'all may be familiar with that. It was a huge book that was published for a number of years. I have a couple of them at my house. They're older, but they're still a fine resource to have. And um, he wrote a number of articles about Soviet and Chinese spaceflight over the years. He was a friend of mine. Um, I'm really devastated he's gone. He and I used to talk and go back and forth, and he was just a lot of fun to talk to. He was kind mm. of an eccentric, kind of in the old-school British sense, I guess. I'll miss him terribly. I really will. I'm I'm honestly in, in shock he's gone. It hasn't really hit me because I always thought, you know, oh, I can just write him and ask him a question about something, yeah. and so it's just... um. Very sad. There's been too much, too many losses over the last year. So for sure, far too many losses. Um, I believe that main book he wrote uh, is out of print now, but yes, you can still pick up a copy uh, fairly easily and for quite a decent price, I believe. Yeah, you can still get. Um, it is out of print, but you can still find copies of it if you look on like a uh, used book websites or if you look on Amazon. Uh, you can find copies of it. I have two copies of it. Um, <laughs> I have the American version. Bless his heart, one of my cats uh, tried to eat it. Oh, no. <laughs> a few years ago, so it's covered with little bite marks on it. Um, I do have the British version, which I ordered off Amazon, and uh, I have it, I think, uh, uh, tucked away somewhere so my cat wouldn't eat it. The Joy of Pet Ownership. Uh, but it's, it's a book that uh, I... I don't own, but I do need to get. I do need to get a copy of that and have a read through. Uh, it's the Soviet and the Chinese space programs. I just don't know enough about. But um, anyway, it's sad news uh, about the loss of Philip Clark. And uh, as always, our condolences go out to his fans and family, and and to you, Emily. My condolences to you. Thank you. Uh, because he was your friend. Yeah, thank um, you. But 
We have plenty to get on with today, and we've, we're already 11 minutes in. So uh, let's uh, let's move on to the rest of the show. There was at least 12 different stories which were worthy of being brought up. I tried to sneak some into our first section, <laughs> uh, so but we'll, we'll do our best here. Um, so let's start with something that we did mention last week. So last Wednesday, the 13th of January, uh, SpaceX performed three static fire tests on the SN9 Starship prototype at their f- facility in Boca Chica in Texas. Uh, the three Raptor engines were fired briefly as part of a pre-flight routine for the SN9, which is being prepared for a high-altitude test flight. And we reported last week that if this had been successful, then we may have actually seen the flight take place at the weekend. However, there does appear to have been some problems. The CEO of SpaceX, Elon Musk, has tweeted that there was some damage to two of the engines, and in fact, they've had to replace them. The test flight has now been put back while they do that and perform the static firing test again. For those of you who don't know, the Starship is a new rocket which is in development to be able to take people to the moon, Mars and potentially other destinations as well. Uh, And they're hoping that this will all be completely reusable. Um, So this is a little bit of a setback, but they normally recover fairly quickly. The next day, uh, Thursday, uh, January 14th, Blue Origin, which is run by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, launched an upgraded version of their new Shepard spacecraft, which is named after the Mercury 7 astronaut, uh, Alan Shepard, not shirtless Alan Shepard. Um, <laughs> sorry, had to drop that in there. Um, similar to what SpaceX have been developing, uh, this rocket and capsule are both reusable with the booster landing in its landing zone near the launch pad uh, with a powered vertical touchdown and the capsule parachuting not too far away. The spacecraft launched from the company's base in West Texas, and it was a suborbital flight, which reached a maximum height of 66 miles. That is four miles above the Kármán line, which is usually used to define the boundary of space, or 100 kilometers approximately. Yep. The visuals uh, from this launch were fantastic. Uh, I saw some of them on, on Twitter. Um, there were amazing drone shots and images from inside the capsule where they had a fake astronaut strapped in who they dubbed mannequin skywalker <laughs> so pretty pretty funny pretty good pun there oh i love that i love that i don't think he got as much attention as it should have that it, it was i know i <laughs> read yeah. that and i chuckled i was like that's that's a good one it is a good one i also do love the fact that their suborbital rocket is called alan shepherd because he's yeah. like suborbital. I, I love that and i think i've mentioned that new before, glenn but. is gonna be orbital so that makes a lot of sense That's really, I like that. Just amazing. Anyway, um, also last Thursday, the makers of the award-winning Apollo 11 film, which came out in 2019, announced that they've made a sequel. While I was upset at first that it's not Apollo 12, uh, (laughs) because I would love to have seen a Pete Conrad, Alan Bean and uh, Dick Gordon film, I would love that. They've released the trailer for a short film called Apollo 11 quarantine uh, which is rather appropriate uh, given our current <laughs> set circumstances and uh, this film looks at the period of time after the astronauts returned to the earth when they were kept in quarantine for 21 days uh, this will have a limited release in some imax theater from the 29th of january and will also apparently be available online although i've not seen the details of what streaming services that will be available on uh, obviously in the uk cinemas aren't open so i'm really hoping they get this online stuff sorted for People like me who really 
do want to see this movie. Yeah, the the, the closest uh, movie theater to me now is like in Oldsmar, which is where my family lives. And it's about 45 minutes away because I'll be real. All the theaters close to where I live are closed. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'll drive to Oldsmar. It's pretty safe. Um, you know, the, I've, I haven't been to the theater there in a long time. But from what I understand, there's nobody going anyway. So it'd yeah. be cool to see it in IMAX. But um, if worse comes to worse, I will uh, check it out at home on my computer or the or TV. Who knows? With it being about the quarantine, I don't think it's as necessary to, to view it in IMAX as yeah as the original film where that launch footage in IMAX was just stunning and all the breathtaking views from the moon, all that stuff was phenomenal. You know, this is them sitting in a in a mobile <laughs> quarantine unit and then the building in Houston. It's not quite the same. It's not going to have the same IMAX impact, I don't think. Yeah, like unless you want to see like a pimple on somebody's cheek in IMAX, <laughs> then you're like, yeah, this is what I want. But it's like, you know, the movie was so, like you said, I mean, some of the just seeing the Saturn V vertical, it was like you almost had to like, it was like a big reveal. Like you had to yeah. see it in that scale. So, yeah, I totally get it. I could probably, I don't know, I'll probably watch it at home. So, But, you know, now we've both said that, we're both going to watch it at home and then be like, oh, man, we need to see that at the cinema. Yeah. Next episode. Yeah. We'll be like, yeah. man, I got to see it in the theater. I'm, I'll am i be dialing up like every theater. Like, do y'all have this yeah. one? That's pretty funny. All right. Okay. On uh, Saturday, uh, January 16th, uh, we saw an attempt by NASA uh, of the Green Run test of the core stage of the Space Launch System or SLS rocket. Uh, they were due to do a full static fire test of the four engines for eight minutes to uh, simulate a launch, but they shut down after just 67.2 seconds. Um, the abort was automatically triggered by some sensors, and NASA have released a statement saying that the core stage is still in good condition and that this abort would have not happened in flight, but it happened because the ground test parameters are a lot more conservative than in-flight equivalents. Um, they're set like this in order to try and preserve the core stage so it can still fly if something goes wrong on the ground. Um, while this undoubtedly means there probably will be a, a delay to the program, it does show that the systems were working as they should. And uh, NASA are saying that they have some fantastic data from the burn and that they know the cause of the shutdown. Um, this all happened uh, two days after the Orion spacecraft, which will sit on top of this rocket, was taken out of its stand at the checkout building at Kennedy Space Center, uh, ready to be fueled and installed on top of the rocket. So, a mixed bag of news for the Artemis program and NASA's plan to launch the uncrewed Artemis 1 in 2021. Yeah, uh, it's been a strange week for that, really, isn't it? Because obviously we've had the success of Blue Origin and also our next story, which, uh, which is coming up, is positive. But um, we've... Both this story and the SN9 story, it's it's kind of a, a big reminder. This is why we test. It is to, to, to figure out these kind of problems. I mean, Rocket Lab had to call off a, a launch as well over in New Zealand. Um, and also because of some sensors picking something up and they've rescheduled that. And their mission is called Another One Leaves the Crust, which is just amazing. <laughs> You know, these things happen. We did a whole whole episode about Scrubs as well. So um, I think NASA got a bit of a hard time about this, in my opinion. I agree. While constructive criticism is obviously valid, I think this has gone a bit too far. And predominantly, again, from the SpaceX fan, fanboys who have done this despite the fact that they've had their own problems with SN9 and those uh, engines that need replacing. But 
once again, we have to remind everyone that it's not a competition. Exactly. They're both doing completely different things. There's room for both. There's definitely need for SN9 and what they're doing. And, and, and SLS had a pla- has a place as yeah. well. Um, but they're doing very different testing strategies here. So it's really unfair to, uh, to, to even compare the two in many regards. It's a different approach to what NASA has really done in the past as well. Um, in the 60s, Apollo had all-up testing, which basically was just in a, like super integrated testing. And um, that was actually really ballsy because um, some of the test stuff went wrong in flight, like mm. Apollo 6. I mean, that I read about that and I'm like, oh, crap, like everything went wrong, you know? Mm. Or a lot of stuff went wrong. Like, if there had been people on board, they wouldn't have made it to the moon. And, um, of course, what's the next Saturn V launch? People going to the moon. So, that's very ballsy. I don't think NASA or really anybody, anybody, not to take, you know, not to say, oh, NASA's being too safe, but I don't think anybody would do that nowadays. Um, It also bears mentioning in the 70s when they were testing the, the same type of main engines for the shuttle, you could probably, I don't know, I haven't searched for it. You, you could probably go to YouTube and find some. They were blowing those up all the time. I mean, there was a lot of concern that, is this thing going to work at all? And mm. uh, finally, they got it right. But still, I mean, that was a big concern for a long time. And it's quite, you know, when you blow something up, you can't use it again. <laughs> yeah. So something to think about, you know. And, and And also, like, just in terms of that approach... This rocket is, they're intending to have one launch test with it before they put humans in it. Exactly, yeah. Whereas Apollo, they had a bigger budget. They had, you know, all the the Apollo test program, which was really pretty extensive. But for the Saturn V, they had Apollo 4, and then they had, I think Apollo 5 was a Saturn 1. It was a test of the uh, lunar module. And then they had mm. 6, which went almost pretty wrong. And then the next one had people on it. So, yeah. So yeah, I, I agree. It's a it's a different time. It's also a different program from SpaceX. Um, yeah. We shouldn't expect them to be doing the exact same thing. Absolutely. And even SpaceX with the Falcon Nine, they they took ninety odd flights before they put humans on board. You know, testing should be more conservative when you're putting humans on board. Yeah, they have to get it right. Basically. They have to get it right. Yeah, ex- exactly. So. You know, we'll see how this develops. Hopefully the delay won't be too long because because they've managed to keep that core stage in good condition and they shut down early. Uh, so hopefully it won't be too long before we can get the Artemis program back on track. Uh, although we, you and I have said since we started this podcast that the idea of, of that program being on the moon with people by 2024 has always seemed a bit dubious to me. Um, yeah. But... Or, or, I mean, there's one other point I'd like to bring up here, and that's mm-hmm. when when the Saturn rocket was being developed, every single rocket scientist in the in the US was working on that project. Yeah, you now you now have however many different companies all pulling from the same set of people, and some will pay more than the government. Yeah, you know, and it, and that's not to say that the people working for NASA aren't as good. By, or by any stretch, but there aren't as many people working on that as there should be. So these things just take, do take longer by the sheer maths of we've got X amount of rocket scientists exactly <laughs> divided by more companies. Uh, so it, it's a different world now to what it used to be, yeah. and it shouldn't be compared. 
Yeah, they didn't have, you know, back then, they didn't have a bunch of um, different vendors like we do yeah. now. I mean, they had different programs and they had, you know, satellite programs and other, you know, stuff. But like you said, there's a lot more players now than there were back in the 60s. So um, and plus there's less people, you know, because of the pandemic and even before the pandemic happened, a lot of uh, government programs are kind of. There's not a lot of people working in them, you know, just because the government doesn't have enough money to pay half a million people to work on a single thing anymore. Mm, you know? For sure. And uh, speaking of other companies working in the US and stealing those NASA rocket scientists, <laughs> we did get some good news on Sunday the 17th, uh, the very next day, when uh, Virgin Orbit achieved their first orbital flight and delivered a payload of 10 CubeSats to low Earth orbit. The rocket is carried into the sky by a modified Boeing 747 plane called Cosmic Girl, and it's released from under the wing over the Pacific Ocean, where it then ignites and pulls away. This was the second powered test flight of the Launcher 1 rocket, and it was returned to flight launch after a failed attempt last May. Virgin Orbit is the sister company of Virgin Galactic, which uses the same air launch technology for its suborbital space plane, which is called Spaceship 2. Now, Virgin Orbit claimed that this launch strategy increases the flexibility and responsiveness compared to vertical ground launches. Uh, but Obviously, I don't have that data, but we'll have to take their word for it. Yeah, there is. I do think there's um, some film of this. Uh, you could probably go to Virgin Orbit on uh, Twitter and uh, find it. Uh, I've seen some of it, and it's really fun to watch. Yeah, it's, it's a, a whole lot of fun. As always, I will put links to videos of all the launches we've mentioned within our show notes for you to go and have a look at. All right. And finally, uh, something else that's new. At some point this week, a startup company called Blue Shift Aerospace will launch its first Stardust suborbital rocket prototype from Loring Air Force Base in Limestone, which is in the north of Maine. Um, it was supposed to go last Friday, but was scrubbed due to the weather. It can carry three small payloads to 4,000 4, feet and then parachute back to Earth. It's a 20-foot tall rocket, or 6 meters for uh, our metric friends out there. And the flight uh, will take about one minute and 30 seconds. But what makes this company interesting is their use of biofuel and attempts to be carbon neutral. Uh, the fuel can apparently be sourced cheaply from across America. So they'll be live streaming this from their website, which we will post a link to in our show notes. I find this one really interesting. And when we're trying to address climate change and uh, it's one of the big questions which is always put towards the space industry, I think this is a fantastic opportunity and avenue to explore. This fuel is is uh, is farmed in America, locally sourced, uh, and it should be carbon neutral. And, and maybe this is the answer to the question of can the space industry operate in a carbon neutral environment? Um, and it's a startup company. So, you know, let's, let's keep our fingers crossed that they can uh, they can get this going. I'm I'm excited by this. Very cool. And again, they're taking away more scientists from NASA, so ma yeah. maybe we're never going to get to the moon on Artemis. <laughs> <laughs> I sure hope so, but yeah, 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 yeah. They're taking all our scientists away, but good luck, good luck to them, though. Absolutely, I hope it goes well. Welcome home, Columbia. Beautiful, beautiful. We'll have to take it up the hangar, Joe. We're going to test it out first. 
As discussed at the top of the show, we were saddened to hear of the passing of former NASA astronaut William Thornton. He died at his home in Bourne, Texas at the age of 91. Thornton was selected as an astronaut in 1967 as part of the second group of scientist astronauts. Uh, Although due to the program cuts, they were told it was unlikely that they would fly, so they were dubbed the XS-11. Some of them did hang on long enough to get a flight though, and Thornton ended up with 313 hours in space after two missions, STS-8 and STS-51B, both on board the Space Shuttle Challenger. Yeah, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Dr. William Thornton. I've met him one time. He was actually at um, the uh, Skylab 40th anniversary uh, gala in um, 2013. He was there because he was part of the SMEET crew. SMEET stands for uh, uh, Skylab Medical Experiment Altitude Test. And it was basically like a 56-day-long analog mission that was very Skylab-esque. They had experiments. They um, they were living in a mock-up of Skylab. They were um, doing the same things that, you know, the astronauts would do on Skylab. And this happened in 1972. So he was on the panel for that. I think all the guys from Speed were from there because the three guys were um, Dr. Thornton, uh, Bob Crippen, and uh, Bo Bobko. I remember, though, he was talking and he was really freaking funny. Like he was, um, I guess he had a, an issue with the bicycle uh, ergometer. I think I'm saying that right. Basically, uh, if you know anything about Skylab, they had a, like an exercise bike. It had two functions. First, for exercise. And second, it was like a medical. It was a medical experiment. And um, I think Thornton got so obsessed with the bicycle he caught it on fire at one point <laughs> i'm not making this up like i know that that's that's metal that's very heavy metal i was like i've never done that so i'm kind of jealous so he was really a big part of skylab and putting together like a lot of its um i i believe he put together some of the um observations and experiments for the mission on the medical side and uh he helped to refine you know some of the uh i think the weighing machine because they did have uh like a scale didn't does not look like an earth scale but they had a a, you know a way to weigh yourself on skylab with without using you know obviously a scale because you don't have weight in space you have mass so yeah he came up with a lot of stuff he also came up with something called thornton's revenge which was um used on skylab 4 and it's a it's like a makeshift treadmill and um he actually was responsible for inventing the space shuttle treadmill now um i was reading some of thornton's biography and um his career before he joined nasa was insane like this guy um it really speaks to how the 1967 group of astronauts i've written quite a bit about them i want to say this really carefully they were kind of the most well-rounded group of people that had been selected to be astronauts to that point. I mean, they had people with a lot of different diverse experiences for that time. You know, you had somebody like Story Musgrave who has a degree in just about everything you can imagine. (laughs) Um, You had Phil Chapman who'd been to Antarctica, which was not something people just did at that time. You know, so they really had a pretty amazing group. Let's talk about Dr. Thornton a little bit. He joined the Air Force um, after graduating from uh, the University of North Carolina in 1952. Uh, by the way, I'm reading, I'm taking some of this um, 
believe this is from the University of Texas website. This website has a lot of his papers and his archives. If you're a space nut, I highly suggest you go to this website and search for stuff. It's incredible. Yeah, I've been I've been enjoying that, going through some of that today in, in, in the course of researching as you sent me that link. There's some great stuff on there. There is, and there's stuff in there that honestly I've been trying to find for like ages. And I was like, oh my God, I tracked it down. More on that <laughs> another time. But I, I, I was searching through it last night doing research for this podcast and I was searching through it and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I stumbled across this. Like, I've heard about this, but I didn't know it still existed. Like, I figured it'd been thrown out or somebody had just, you know, put it in a box somewhere. And no, here it is right in front of me. So, highly recommend you go look through it. Back to his career. I got a little off track. Uh, he joined the Air Force in the 1950s after he graduated from uh, the University of North Carolina. His biography states that he served as officer in charge of the Air Force Instrumentation, instrumentation, why can't I say that, laboratory at uh, Eglin uh, Air Force Base, I think that's how it's said, in uh, Florida at the Flight uh, Test Air Proving Ground. He discovered, this is before he became an astronaut, he discovered that rockets could be tracked by radar. So he invented the Radar Optic Firing Error Indicator, or the Thornton score, which was the um, is which is described as the first practical means of evaluating and maintaining the accuracy of interceptor aircraft. This was highly successful, and he was awarded the Legion of Merit for this in 1956. Mm. So this guy was inventing stuff all the way back in the 50s when he was still in his 20s. Anyway, in 1959, he. Uh, enrolled at, uh, in medical school. After he did all that, he's like, I just want to be a doctor. So, um, <laughs> right? That's as you do. He enrolled in medical school in 1959 at um, the University of North Carolina. He returned to active duty in 1963, and he was uh, part of the uh, Air Force Aerospace Medical Division at Brooks Air Force Base, which is in San Antonio, Texas. At the time, he was, um, and this is very appropriate, given what I just told you about Skylab. At the time, he was assigned to discover, you know, how do we weigh things and people in space. So he invented the uh, linear mass scale pendulum, or mass scale, which, uh, according to the website, did not weigh objects in the conventional sense. What the mass scale measured was the quantity of mass of an object. So once the, the mass was figured out, a translation of the findings into ounces and pounds or grams and kilograms could be made through the use of a conversion table. Yes, yeah, so before he becomes an astronaut, he figures out how to weigh people in space and things in space. And then in 1967, he becomes an astronaut. So he did all that stuff before even becoming an astronaut. So um, it's freaking crazy. But like I said, it really speaks to how incredible that, that class was. I really think that class was like the first to, even though some of the guys did not end up flying in space, a few of them did resign, which I can understand they didn't want to wait 15 years to fly on the space shuttle. I think that it really speaks to, you know, the incredible people that class had and also how that class really was, I think, one of the first modern astronaut classes where, okay, they weren't just fighter jocks, which that's not yeah. bad. You know, I'm not trying to cast judgment against, you know, fighter jocks at all. But um, they were, you know, they had a lot of skill in many different areas. They could fly planes and they could 
figure out how to weigh people in space, you know, stuff like that. (laughs) So I think it was the first time where we saw, you know, where astronauts had to develop a a huge skill set to be able to, you know, perform their job, you know, in space. And I think we're still seeing that today. If you look at a lot of the astronaut, like the Artemis astronauts, if you look at their biographies, their resumes are insane. I mean, yeah, yeah, they're nuts. So I feel like Dr. Thornton was kind of the first in a series of, of starting that, like, okay, this is somebody who is multi-talented and you need that kind of mind to function in this kind of career. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I haven't done as much research as you on all this, but th- that group were high achievers and they continue to be high achievers, the ones that stayed and the ones that didn't stay in their respective careers, uh, which is quite something. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, unsung heroes within spaceflight. And I feel like this group do fit into that category. I think a fair amount of people may have heard the name Story Musgraves. Maybe not everyone, but everyone in within this group has got one of those backgrounds which you need to, the more you look up, you're like, why don't I know more about this person? This person is amazing, achieved so much in their life, and some of them also were very successful astronauts as well. Yeah. Um, and they should be inspirational to us the same way that we talked about that these Artemis, the new Artemis astronauts are as well. Yeah. So we obviously were very sad when we found out about the passing of Dr. William Thornton. But personally, I have very much enjoyed getting to know him over the last few days and finding out more about him. So I hope, like me, you go and delve into some of these files and these biographies of him and get inspired yourself. He did reach the ripe old age of 91. So well played. Well played. Yeah. And, uh, and, and thank you for everything you did. Yes, thank you. Um, he was really, I do have to say, I, I, I only briefly met him, you know, because I, I was at the time I was like, I don't want to talk to any of these guys. But he was really funny and he was very kind. And uh, yeah. he certainly will be missed. He, from what I understand, I have friends who are authors who got to work with him and he was awesome. So, yeah. um. Truly an unsung hero and somebody we probably should know more about. Endeavor Houston, we see a nominal Miko, Ohms 1, not required. Welcome to space. So last week's podcast about alternative space history certainly got everyone talking. And we don't do this enough, so here is some of the correspondence we've had from you this week. On Instagram, a door in the dark said, while reading Comcheck and bringing Columbia home, I also read Launch on Need. Uh, a fictional account dramatizing the prep and launch of Atlantis on a rescue mission to save Columbia's crew based on the in-flight options assessment from the Columbia Accident um, Investigation Board. Uh, Spending a little time in this alternate reality has taken a little of the sting out of reading the real-life histories as well as uh, bringing the imagined rescue plan to life. Um, I've never heard of that. I'm embarrassed to say I've never heard of that. I need to read it. That might help me out, too, because um, I love bringing Columbia home. That's a wonderful book. Not an easy read. Uh, it's very yeah. emotional. I'd have to take breaks while reading it because yeah. you're just like, I got to put this down for a minute. <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. just a lot. So um, to hear that somebody kind of did, you know, the other side, you know, like, OK, we're going to rescue the crew. You know, I mean, it it does give you kind of a sense of hope so uh i have to read that that sounds actually quite nice when when i saw that comment i thought that it was something that you would you would like to see and like to read uh so thanks thanks for getting in contact during the dark over, over on facebook todd oliver does what he does best uh, and thanks every <laughs> week for your memes todd we always appreciate them uh, but we also heard from uh, from ronald Perviance. 
I hope I'm saying your surname right. That's how I say it in my head every time I see it. Anyway. I think it's uh, right. Ronald is one of our patron subscribers, so thank you very much, Ronald. Uh, he said that he, uh, as Emily knows, he said, uh, that he uh, he really enjoys the alt space world so much that he's actually written his own sequel to Voyage by Stephen Baxter. Uh, he has shared the link with us, and I will put that in the show notes. He stresses that you shouldn't read it unless you've read the original, but I'm sure some of you might be interested in that. Now I have to read Voyage and so I can read the sequel. So definitely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Ronald. Also on Facebook, uh, Dwayne Day. Hi, Dwayne. Uh, pointed out that um, alternate histories, and I quote, can be used to challenge assumptions about cause and effect relationships. In other words, we can assume that Y happened because of X. And if we can change X, does Y still happen or does something else happen? It can indicate if our assumptions are strong or weak. That's an interesting point, and uh, it's it's a good point. We, on our show, we definitely decided to talk uh, about them more as a form of escapism, uh, which might be uh, needed a lot right now for, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, a lot of us. But um, I think Dwayne does make a good point, because there have been times where I'll think about certain things like, what if this had happened, and okay, what would have happened next because of that? Like, it's almost like watching, you know, you think about an avalanche, what happens right before the avalanche? A little snowflake bumps against something, against something. So it's kind of, I think he makes a he makes a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and which re- reminds me that Mar mentioned that he was <laughs> he's gonna on Twitter. He said something about uh, writing a fic about Neil Armstrong, multiple Neil Armstrongs saving the multiverse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that kind of <laughs> reminds me of that. But anyway, also over on Twitter, Suzanne French, who is also one of our Patreon subscribers, says, um, "I don't know if this is the kind of alternate history you had in mind for this episode." But the Lady Astronaut series by Mary Rabinette explores what might have changed if a massive meteorite had hit the Earth in 1952. Brilliantly written and apparently some good audiobooks too. Uh, this was echoed by Courtney Green, who is another one of our wonderful Patreons. Have you um, have you heard about this one, Emily? I have not yet. I've heard about it, but I haven't read it yet. But uh, I'm certainly interested now. I got to check it out. Add it to the list. <laughs> that long list of Add books we both list. have to yeah. read. The, oh, it's the never book ending. Pile. It's yeah. never ending. Um, and of course, uh, some people have suggested who they thought might be in Emily's alternative Skylab crew. So I'm going to go through some of these. And uh, uh, Emily, I don't want you to give away because eventually we all want to read this book or this, this post that you're going to do with your alternate mission. I won't give it away. But Jason Wynn Stanley suggested that Fred Hayes commanded with Jack Lausma and Story Musgrave. That's a great crew. That is a great crew. That is a good crew. A- a- Amy Bean suggested a Skylab dream team of Pete Conrad, Al Bean and Jack Lausma. It's another great crew. And David Hitt yes. made a patch with the crew names Lausma, Kerwin and Carney. Uh, <laughs> I did enjoy that, so thank you, David. For yeah, definitely a great crew. So yeah, definitely a good a good crew. I would I wouldn't <laughs> mind hanging out with those dudes for a while. That'd be they're both Navy. Well, uh, is a Marine, but I'll allow it. <laughs> it's all good. I'll allow Richard it. Richard Southworth suggested Hayes, Joe Allen, and Joe Angle. Joe Allen and Joe Angle. That's gonna that's a tongue twister, and I think that would get confusing. <laughs> but good crew. Urban Spaceman 64 went with Conrad, Gary, and Bean. And Courtney Green went for three Pete Conrads, suggested that Pete Conrad cloning facility should also be included. <laughs> uh, that would be kind of awesome. That. Yeah, could you imagine? Could you imagine? Yeah, that'd be kind of, you clone him from like some of his 
like they find a you know a thing of a vial of blood left on Skylab <laughs> and they just keep cloning like Pete Conrad over and over and over again. Like that movie Moon. Did you ever did you yeah. ever see that movie? <laughs> that was weird. I saw it years ago and I think I had like the flu. Like I had a fever. So I'm home and I think I was in college cuz I'm just like chilling. I'm like I feel horrible. Like I was home that day. I had a fever and I'm watching that movie and I'm like, I can't tell if this is because I'm having a fever or if this is actually in the movie. So I'm not sure if I saw the movie correctly because I don't I I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's an odd one. Sam Rockwell, I believe. But it's an, it's yeah. an odd one. It is an odd one. But uh, I did enjoy it. Thanks to all who've gotten contact with us over the last week. Uh, it's really great to hear from you. And we really appreciate your uh, suggestions. And we'll put any of the books mentioned in the show notes. We will. Hi, I'm Max Kaiserman with Lunar Replicas, and you're listening to the Space and Things podcast with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. So that's all we got time for this week. So much to cover. We hope you've got something out of it. It's probably a little bit longer than the show normally is, but uh, it's all good stuff, I think, this week, and stuff that needed to have a little bit of focus brought on it. Uh, so the show notes are certainly full of loads of extra material this week, so do check that out if you're interested. And talking of uh, extra material please consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash space and things. Over the course of the next few months, we'll have plenty of bonus content going on in there. And by joining, you're really helping us out. Uh, We also appreciate all who have donated to us and uh, purchased one of our t-shirts. Thank you so much. Uh, We're beginning to run low on some sizes. So if you want uh, one of our founders t-shirts, Please get an order in. Yes, please do. Uh, thank you very much to all of you and to all of you who, who just listen along quietly and, and don't get in contact as well. Uh, that's also very much appreciated. And to anyone who has pressed that share button, uh, it's, that's super helpful. So thank you very much. But please remember, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.